Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. Well, it's no secret that Jesus said some things that were rather hard to understand. Even his own disciples didn't get everything that he had to say. We've seen this as we've worked our way through the book of Mark. So frankly, it shouldn't surprise us if we don't understand everything in this book and everything that Jesus said. Now, he said a lot of stuff that was crystal clear and and very simple. As he said at one time, the stuff that you need to, to, to enter the kingdom of heaven is understandable by even a little child. But along the way, he sometimes spoke in metaphors. Sometimes he uses hyperbole. Other times he uses colloquial phrases, things that they may be understood back then, but 2,000 years later, we don't quite know what that's a word picture of or, or, or what it, how it fits. Our scripture today is one of those passages. It's got in it a couple of things where it's difficult to understand exactly what Jesus is getting at. And there's almost a cottage industry within Christian publishing that has come up and folks that either in books or, or in podcasts or, or wherever they are, they major on answering the, the minutiae, the unanswered questions on the difficult sayings of Jesus. I've got two books in my library. They're titled with that exact title, The Difficult Sayings of Jesus. But if you stop and think about it, all they are is one more bit of speculation because the fact is there are some things that we don't necessarily know and understand. It reminds me of a passage the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy when he left him in Ephesus. He left him there to set in order all the house churches that had been newly planted. And he told him to stay away. He said, make sure you shut down. Stay away from people who love controversy. You might remember last week we looked at that scripture and we talked about it. We're not talking about discussion, but we're talking about the divisive controversy. He says, these people want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. So frankly, if you want to know Jesus and and how to follow him well, it's pretty simple. Don't worry so much about the stuff you don't understand. Make sure you live in light of the stuff you do understand, because most of us already have more truth than we're following. Would you agree? And in our passage today, it has both crystal clear and it has things that make you, hmm. We're going to focus on the crystal clear within this passage and we'll see what it has to say to us about how the Lord wants us to live here in 2022. Now, by the way of of what's been going on, Jesus has for the second time on his way to Jerusalem where he's going to die, he's been telling his followers that he's going there to be killed and he's going to rise again on the third day. And after this second time, we saw in the last few messages that they had no idea what he was talking about. They were clueless. And as he's talking about going to to suffer, they immediately begin to discuss among themselves who's going to be in the highest positions in his new administration once he overthrows the Romans. 
So he gathers them all together in a room in the house, just the 12 disciples and, and a few family members there. It's no longer the crowd, the big multitudes that he'd been speaking to. And he discusses three things that we saw two weeks ago, last week, and we're going to look at today. The first thing he told them was how to really be first in the kingdom. He says, you guys got it all wrong. As you've been arguing about it, you become first in my kingdom by serving others. Then he looked around and he saw a child in the house and he said, come here. And in that culture, children were to be seen and not heard. They were the least of the least. And he says, you've got to serve ones like this little one here. And then as we saw last week in John raises his hand. When Jesus is talking about humility and, and service, John raises, oh, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. We saw a guy do a ministry in your name, and we shut him down because he wasn't one of us. And Jesus says, man, you don't get it. I want to tell you not only how to be first in the kingdom, but now I want you guys to understand who's on our team. And then he tells them, whoever is not against us is for us. We need to make sure that our circle is as big as Jesus' circle. And then we, came to these, we come to these verses, which we're going to look at today. After telling them how to be first in the kingdom with a couple of sentences, who's on your team with a couple of sentences, he now tells them how to go to hell, which is probably not what you expected. But that's literally what he does. He's emphasizing the radical way that we need to deal with sin. So Mark chapter 9, beginning at verses 42, we're going to go through verse 50. And remember, it's all one continuing thing that we've paused on. We've taken three weeks to, to look at this, to look at this uh, interlude in the house that where Jesus is teaching there. So here we go. He says in verse 42, And if anyone causes one of these little ones who... Now notice the next word there. Who believe. Underline that word on your life notes. One of these little ones who believe in Jesus. He's speaking about children who believe in Jesus. One of those little ones who believe in me, if he caused them to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Now, a millstone, if you've never seen one, is huge. You know, you have these little hand mills, but he's talking about a big millstone. And, you know, it's massive, it's, it's round, and, and if you had that put around your neck and you were cast in the sea, you're, you're a goner. You're, 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 you're done. And he says, as bad as that is, it would be better to have that happen to you than to cause one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. And then he switches gears, no longer the little ones. He turns to the 12 and he says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. Now understand he's using hyperbole here to illustrate the seriousness of sin. If he meant for this to be told literally, we'd have a whole lot of no hands, no feet, blind Christians running around the world. He says it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where, and he quotes Isaiah here, the worms that eat them do not die, and the fire is not quenched. Now, do you see why I titled this Getting Radical About Sin? You cause one of these little ones to stumble, millstone and sea. You stumble because of your hand, your foot, your eye, cut it off, pluck it out. He says, man, it's better to get rid of these things completely because the end result is this place called 
hell. He continues. He says in verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, in other words, he's saying, if you know anything about salt, salt doesn't go bad, does it? Salt doesn't lose its saltiness over time. And this is a colloquial phrase. This was the phrase they had back then. And it's used, and he's saying, basically, if it's not able to be used for what it, what it can be used for, but the thing is, salt doesn't lose its So He says the expe- expectation is that salt will be salty, that it's not going to lose it. So he says, I'm not expecting you to lose your saltiness. He goes on, he says, how can you make it salty again? In other words, can't happen. It's an inconsistency. It's illogical to, for salt to lose its flavor. He says, have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. You want to be first in the kingdom? Serve other people. The lowest of the low in culture in society's eyes. And make sure you understand that we're all in this life together if we are followers of Jesus. Not just those in our little circle, but those in Jesus' circle. And by the way, make sure you don't cause anybody to stumble, especially little ones who believe in me, because you'll end up in hell. And make sure if your hand, your foot, your eye causes you to stumble, man, deal with it. Deal radically with sin, because it's better to miss these incredibly great and important things than to end up in eternity separated from the Lord. Well, that's a pretty straightforward passage, isn't it? But here's the thing. What do we do with this? What do we do with this on Monday? It's like, okay, I read these things. I heard these things in chapel and church, but what does it mean to live this out in our lives the other six days of the week? Now, as you can see in your life notes, that half sheet of paper that you were handed when we came in this morning, I've outlined this message with four important questions. What does it mean to call someone to stumble? Because we need to look at that, because it may not mean what you think it means. It may not mean what you may have been taught that it means. But it is a big deal. And I don't want to do that in my own life. I don't want to call someone else to, in, their, in their life to stumble, right? Then we're going to look at who are these little ones for me and you today, not the kid that was in the room when Jesus was there, because that kid's, we don't even know who it was. So we can't be with that kid today. What causes these little ones to stumble? And then what causes us? What causes you and me to stumble? What are the things that that these hyperbole, these metaphors, these word pictures are pointing to in the real day-to-day sense in our modern world? And that's where I want to spend the balance of our time this morning. So let's dig into these four important questions that jump out of this short little passage. And the first one is this. What does it mean to call someone to stumble? In modern English, we say that that we call someone to stumble, and, and that could mean that a lot of things. We could trip them and they fall, you know, we could push them and they, and, they, and they fall down, or they could almost fall. All kinds of things are in, included in that. But the biblical concept of stumbling is this, it's to fall away completely, to have a total, complete falling away from God. It's not that you annoyed somebody, it's not that you upset them, it's not that you cause a little setback in their life. The biblical concept of stumbling is to fall away completely. And I think you can see it in the verses we just read in terms of what causes you to stumble. Three times Jesus equated someone who stumbles as someone who who goes where? They go to, yeah, you can say it in church, they go to hell. It's not like, well, they they sinned or they did this or they did that, causing someone to stumble. You know, as he's using his passages to, to be completely and totally cut off from any relationship with God. 
Now that raises a question. There's a question that church, uh, the church has dealt with over the years. And, and, and some, in some denominations, they'll say yes to the answer to the question I'm going to pose, and others will say no. It raises the question, can a person who is a believer, one of these little ones who believes in me, as he says, or one of the 12, as he addresses later in the passage, can they be saved and lose their salvation? Well, I believe the Bible seems to speak quite clearly that we do not earn our salvation. Our salvation does not depend upon us. When Jesus cried out on the cross and said, paid in full, it is finished, it was paid in full and it was finished. Our salvation depends not upon us, but upon the finished work of Christ. We are saved by grace, unmerited favor, not by the works of us following the Old Testament law or anything else that we could do. But as we've seen over and over again, a nod to God, just a nod in God's, you know, passing nod in God's direction, that's not the same thing as following God. Believing facts about Jesus is not the same thing as faithing Jesus. As we saw a few weeks ago, the demons believe that he's the son of God. The demons believe that he died. The demons believe that he rose again. But I don't expect to live next door to a demon in heaven. Hopefully you don't either. So the idea that, that you somehow were a Christian and now you fell into some sin, even gross high-handed sin, and now you're not, and then you can get right again with God and you go in and out of salvation like a yo-yo up and down, the Bible has nothing to do with that. This idea of how good have you been? Have you done anything and not made it right with God? Have you not confessed your final sin before you die you know, to make sure that you get into heaven? If, if, if that were the case, then your salvation would depend upon whom? On you. But it doesn't depend upon you and me. It depends upon him and his finished work on the cross. Our sins are forgiven. He said it is finished. All of them, past, present, and future. But what about the possibility of, of slowly moving to the point to where we haven't just fallen into sin, but our heart becomes so hard that we don't desire God? You know, the bottom line is that only God knows someone's heart. Only God knows someone's heart. There's some passage in the Bible that seem to imply that this is a possibility. And I, when I think of this, I think of one in Hebrews chapter 6 uh, in particular, a few ver the first few verses of chapter 6 there. But here's the thing. I don't want to get into a theological argument about that. Could someone lose it? Couldn't they? Whatever. I already told you, I believe that God, the Bible teaches what we call eternal security, that we're eternally secure in Christ. I want us to understand that the warning of this passage that we're looking at this morning. And in the warning of this passage, it was spoken to the crowd. No, it wasn't spoken to the crowd. It was spoken to whom? The 12. The 12, Jesus' closest followers. And and Jesus called them to himself, including Judas. And Judas seems at one point to have believed in Jesus, these Messiah. Jesus called him to himself. And Jesus sent out the 12 to do miracles. He sent out the 72. They went out to the cities, and they, they came back. And, and no one said, wow, everybody else could do miracles, except old Judas here. You know, he just didn't have the power. You know, he seems to have had the power to work in his life. The fruit of his life seemed to be so committed that the other guys made him the treasurer. I mean, you don't take the guy that's the, the guy that isn't quite up to snuff. You don't take the guy that you don't trust and say, hey, he looks like a thief. You know, let's make him the treasurer. Now, John tells us that, that Judas, after the fact, John's writing his gospel, and he tells us that Judas was pilfering money from the treasury all along. But the warning here I want us to catch is about falling away absolutely and completely. And I want us to, to at least struggle with the fact because 
even though it doesn't fit my theological paradigm, I never want my theology to determine my Bible. I want the Bible to determine my theology. And in this passage, he says, if your hand, your foot, your eye, and he's speaking to whom? The 12, the inner circle. I think he's speaking to us. And he also refers to the little ones who I pointed out, believe in me. He said they believe in me. So what does it mean to cause any of these to stumble? It means that we call them to fall away completely. And when we call someone to do something that destroys their faith. So it destroys their faith. It's not just they fall away completely, but it's, because, but it's when I'm responsible for them falling away completely and cause them to have their faith destroyed. Now, I've spoken many times here before on the dangers of legalism. I think it's a real threat to Christian liberty. I think it's a real threat to the cause of Christ. This is those extra man-made rules by Christians who figure, well, you know, God was too busy to write down all the rules he needed to in the Bible. So they take some Bible verses and they add to them, and then they equate them with Scripture. And, and if you followed us along here in Mark, you saw that there were some people that Jesus dealt with like that. We call them Pharisees. You know, Jesus confronted those folks. He said, don't do that. But yet we have people in the church today that still do that. The problem is these rules that they, they, they make up while they may have a basis in Scripture, they are not Scripture. And this idea of stumbling has been misused by legalists forever. Because of what they've said and they've done, they, they've said, you know what, you should never do anything that annoys or anything that offends anybody. And you should never do anything that someone might see and, and, and you see, they might see you do it and they might misinterpret it as if you were doing something bad. You know, now, they take a verse, I put the, the reference in your life notes in 1 Thessalonians 5.22. Here's what it says in the old uh, King James Shakespearean English translation that I grew up on uh, back from the 1611. It says, abstain from all appearance of evil. Have you ever heard that? You had people say it to you? Were you taught it? Now, literally, what it says, it says, abstain from every form of evil. The literal translation of the, of the Greek there is. But language was different in 1611. There's many things where, where language is, is different. Um, the word perfect, for example, I, I love to get in debates with King Jimmy only people because they don't understand the word perfect, the word that they translate perfect there means complete. It doesn't mean perfect as without flaw. Or there's another word that's used in King Jimmy time, conversation. When we talk about conversation in 2022, if I said something about your conversation, you would know that I was uh, discussing your oral discourse. But in, in, 16, in the 17th century, when the King James was translated, conversation meant the entire way you comported yourself, the entire way that you lived your life. So language does change. I grew up with the old Anglican prayer book, the 1928 versions, the thee, the thous, the verilies, the vouchsafes, and all that stuff. And we, none of us that I know of here in this room talk like that anymore. Language changes. So it says, abstain from every form of evil. The language has changed. And so many of us when we were growing up, if, if uh, we were told that if anybody could misinterpret what you were doing, so that meant that you couldn't go to the movies. I remember, I've said, I think I've said it before, my, my, my good friend Luther Bell, he told me a story once how he snuck away to the movies one Sunday afternoon. He was just praying God wouldn't strike that that cinema with a, with a lightning bolt because he was sinning by being in the, in the, in the movie, on the, especially on a Sunday afternoon. But especially you don't want to go to a multi-cinema because you know what could happen. You know, the multi-cinema, they see you walking out there, they might think that you went to an R-rated movie. 
Not, you know, Bambi, not the G-rated movie. These legals, they'll say, you couldn't have a beer because someone might think that you drank the whole six-pack and got drunk, which, yes, the Bible says don't get drunk. It doesn't say don't drink alcohol unless you take a Nazarite vow. And I don't know many Christians today that take Nazarite vows. Some Christians do take vows. Some, some uh, institutions and some uh, schools and things like that require a Nazarite-type vow. And if you take that vow, then you should honor it. But that's not what we're talking about here. Oh, and then I love this one, you know, because I break it every, almost every Sunday night. You can't play cards. In fact, they went so far 50, 100 years ago, they weren't just called cards. They were called what? The devil's cards. The devil's cards. As if Satan owned all the cards. You know, because if they see you playing cards, you might be, you might be addicted to gambling. Now, somebody who has a problem with any of these things, if they, they, they might have seen you and then they decide to, that it's okay for me, then, then you're, you're being a stumbling block. You're causing them to stumble in sin. And so we've got this whole goofy set of things where we were told, well, these aren't in the Bible, but you have to follow them anyway. That's what legalism is. And, and folks, I've said it before, I'll say it a million times. Jesus saved his harshest words. His harshest words were to whom? The legalists of his day. And I never want to have Jesus look me in the eye and say, Walt, you are a legalist. Now, understand this. All of us, when we're in the presence of somebody who is offended or bothered by a behavior, we have freedom in, in that we should sublimate and, and, and set aside our behavior. I'm not going to have a blue moon with someone that I know is dealing with, with, with alcohol problem. I'm not going to do that. And I've had people say, well, you, you, know, you just like beers. And no, or you don't understand. Well, I... I my father was an alcoholic. My daddy died when he was 11, or when I was 11, when he was 39. He would have been something if he died when he was 11. My daddy died when he was 39 from his alcohol and, and abusing his body, the things that he did. I've been in jail once in my life. I was thrown in a jail cell in, when I was eight years old with my daddy in Georgia when he was picked up for DUI. And I sat in a cell with him for three hours until my uncles got there to get us out of the cell. So I understand what alcohol can do and such like that. Philippians 2, 3 and 5 says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And what, what I mean is, you know, why would I stand up and say, well, I have freedom to do this when I know that it's going to be a, something that's going to bother you or going to tempt you? And that's not hypocrisy, by the way. That's love. That's changing my behavior in light of whom I'm with out of love. But what you don't want to do, what I'm trying to point out here, what stumbling is, you don't want to live in such a way that, that somebody might be offended. So you're always looking over your shoulder for some hypothetical person who just might show up and just might misunderstand that completely innocent thing that you're doing. And, and here's, here's the thing about legalism. There's always going to be another person that's more legalistic than you. I'm looking out there, and I, I tend to wear a lot of black, dark colors. I, I like wearing black. It makes it simple to, to plan my wardrobe. You know, being in the military, I, I didn't get to choose what to wear every day, and I don't have a bunch of choice there. But as I look it out at you, I know some Christians that would have real problems with some of the colors that you folks are wearing. And that would be what legalists would say, a stumbling block for them. I'm not offended, though. So therefore, all your freedom in Christ uh, for these folks, it's a wonderful idea, but, but they don't want you to actually experience it. That's what legalism does. This concept of causing someone to stumble is misused. Your freedom in Christ is a very, very important thing to hold on to. 
When the Bible calls it sin, you have no freedom. We don't get to make up the rules. I'm talking about these extra things, these extra things that, that are added, but out of love, we put the needs and interests of other people ahead of our own. So what does it mean to call someone to stumble? Well, in this passage and everywhere else in the Bible, it means to fall completely away. Anyone who causes these little ones to stumble, or these little ones who believe in me to stumble. So the second question, well, who are these little ones? Well, literally, when Jesus said these words, they were the children in the room. Now, I want you to see the, the verses we saw earlier a couple weeks ago in this short little section, Mark chapter 9, verses 35 and 37. I'm going to put them up here on the screen or have Chris put them up on the screen so we can see them. This is the beginning of the conversation that we're seeing the end of today. It says there, it says, Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He then took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. So when Jesus said these little children who believe in me, five, six sentences earlier, or later rather, which little children is he talking about? He's talking about the ones in that household. Now why is this important? Because obviously this concept applies to youngsters, to young folks, young believers, but very specifically it applies to the children in our households, to our sons and our daughters, to our granddaughters and our grandsons. Their faith is, is often more our faith at that point when they're childlike like that. They believe in Jesus. And he's saying, make sure that you don't cause these little ones in your household, that you, you don't cause them to stumble. And that leads to question three. Questions three and four where we're going to spend the rest of our time. What things cause the little ones to stumble? Now, I want to look at three things in particular. We can make a much longer list this morning. But three things in particular that over and over again cause kids that are raised in so-called Christian homes to kick the traces as soon as they can. If you're a grandparent, which I know many of us, if not most of us are here, if you're a grandparent, pray for your kids, pray for your grandkids. Then don't act like you're their parent. They have parents, you're not their parents. God made you the grandparents and you need to understand that otherwise you're gonna have other problems in your family. You're the grandparent. Pray like crazy for your kids and for your grandkids. If you're a parent, these are things that are incredibly important. If you're a friend of someone, these are things that you can give some advice on. And sure, you can, you can pass this on to your kids if you're a grandparent and have them listen to the podcast. I want to dial in on three of the most common things that cause little ones in our households, especially in our Christian households, those that we bring to Sunday school, those that we've seen an interest in faith, but by the time they're adults, they turn away from faith. And here's the first one. The first one is harshness. Harshness. I've got Colossians 3.21 up there, and here the, the Apostle Paul is speaking to parents. Now, it says, it says fathers there in that culture because it's a very patriarchal society, but it speaks to every single mom, a single dad, a married couple, a step-parent, and it's in the imperative mood, the verb is. It's a command. Now, we parents, as parents, we like this one, don't we? Children, blank your parents. Children what? Obey your parents. Wow, we, we, we love that one. You know, it's like we want that on the, on the wall. We want it in the hallway. We want it in their, in their bedrooms. But we need to remember that the same Bible where it says children obey your parents, it also says this. It says fathers do not what? 
Embitter. Fathers do not embitter. Mothers do not embitter your children or they will what? Become discouraged. Now this must have been of concern to God. Otherwise he would not have had Paul write this in the scripture. The word embitter there, that that Greek word means to stir up, to provoke, to irritate, to exasperate. Now here's what I want you to catch. Don't provoke, irritate, exasperate your children, not from your viewpoint, but from whose viewpoint? From their viewpoint. Now you can be the best parent ever, and would you agree with it that there's going to be times that even if you're the best parent ever, that your kids are going to have a meltdown? If you say no, you're lying, okay? Um, there, every, every kid has a meltdown at some point, and none of us are perfect parents. Any perfect parents? Okay, again, you're lying if you say so. Okay, you can be the best parent ever, but your kids are going to have a meltdown. There's going to be times, that not only when they're little, but when they're older, when, when they're going to think like that you're the weirdest, you're the oldest, you're the meanest, you're the strictest human being that ever walked the face of the earth. I've told the story before here how there was a time when our oldest daughter was in her teens and I came home from sea and I was going back out for another two months for almost right away and, and she stormed down the hallway in Charleston, South Carolina saying, I can't wait till Frankenstein goes back to sea. <laughs> you know, I was cramping her style. I was raining on her parade. We're talking here about a pattern though, a pattern of harshness where it becomes literally exasperating. Ephesians 6, chapter 4 says this. It says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Here's that word, exasperate. And he's contrasting here. He says, don't exasperate. Instead, instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. In other words, a very important part of bringing up our children to the Lord is not to exasperate them, not to embitter them because of what the end result can be. One small example that I know I had to deal with in the struggle as a parent, if you're more of a structured person, you know, more like perfectionist, I'll go ahead and admit it, my name is Walt and I'm a perfectionist, a recovering perfectionist, you, you, you have routines in your life and you like to set up things, you like things to be in order and, and all like that, you know, it can be hard if you have a child that's totally different. If you have a child that, when you're in Myers, what we call Myers-Briggs personality inventory, if you're a J where you like things in order and you've got a child who's a P, who's just always losing things. I think there was one time my son had, you know, he's the smartest person in our family. The kid's got an IQ off the chart. But I think there was one time in seventh or eighth grade, I think there were at least eight coats that my wife went and picked up at the middle school at the end of the school year. He just kept forgetting his coats, kept forgetting them. But, you know, when you have a kid like, a kid like that, uh, it can be difficult sometimes. And, and you can come across pretty harsh if you're the, the perfectionistic parent. And some of you grew up in, in those homes where you just felt that you could never do anything right. You grew up in that home where there was always a standard that was a little bit higher than what you could do every day. It was, it was about how, you, how well you did, and that can be exasperating. And I'm talking here about harshness, and here's the problem. Those of us who are harsh, we don't usually call ourselves harsh, do we? We usually think, well, we're just kind of strict. Well, let me tell you something. Perfectionism can be both a blessing and it can be a curse. It can help you get real far in your work life and stuff, but it can also damage your relationships with those people who are closest to you, not only your family, but those people that you work with. One of the things you need to watch is not just the fruit of their behavior. You need to watch the fruit of their heart because when you have harshness, it creates bitterness. Now, two sub-points I want you to jot down at the bottom there, how this plays out. One of them is unrealistic expectations. 
And I know as an adult who counsels adults, who talks to adults, uh, people with parent wounds or father wounds, that one of the hugest ones besides a lack of affirmation, you could write that also, that's a bonus. Write down lack of affirmation too. We don't give our kids enough affirmation. I think sometimes uh, the current generation has gone too far the other way. You know, every, every child's a winner, everyone gets a trophy. And I think it's good to fail sometimes because I've learned more from my failures, my flops, and my fumbles than I have from my successes. John Maxwell said that, not we. Unrealistic expectations. Expecting a five-year-old to think like a 10-year-old is not realistic. Expecting a two-year-old to sit down and eat their food in a restaurant and not whine, not cry, not whatever, it's unrealistic. Expecting someone to always do their best even though we don't show our best is unrealistic. And I think we all, we all like to count and well, I only want what's best for you. And actually, I think it's just we want bragging rights as a parent. It's that pride thing. That's a whole other message. The second one here is overprotection. Overprotection. Strict rules about everything, but they're for their good. Helicopter parenting creates an embittering noose that chokes and strangles our children. Overprotection creates hothouse Christian children. And when you grow a hothouse Christian, you, you really have not prepared your children for two things. One, to live in the real world when they get out from underneath your roof, when they get outside of the hothouse, or to be a light to the world, which we are called to do. Jesus said you don't put the light under a bushel. You don't hide the light. No, you put it on a hill so everyone can see it. Our job is not to be in a holy huddle, hiding so that no one wrecks us, there's no one taints us. Our job is to be out there in the marketplace, in the real world, making a difference for Jesus. And if you harshly huffer over, overprotect, have unrealistic expectations, all of that to protect, so that you say, someday you'll thank me. Someday, you ever say that to your kids? Someday you'll thank me. The reality is you're not preparing them for the real world. And when they get out from under you, they're just going to go, well, you know, this isn't as bad as I thought. These people aren't as, as horrible as you painted, as you warned me about. And I've seen it time after time after time. Remember, the bulk of my ministry has been done with people between the ages of 18 and 24, young people. And I've seen it time after time and time again. Hothouse children, somewhere around ages 18 to 26, 27, they turn away from the parents' faith, oftentimes forever, because of these things. Harshness. Watch out for it, because it will cause your little ones to stumble. Again, we're not talking about standards here. We're going to talk about standards in a minute. The second thing that can cause them to stumble is spiritual indifference. Now, last week we talked about the circle, and we questioned how big is your circle. And I mentioned that long-time committed Christians have a tendency to make the circle too small, and those that are new in the faith tend to, to make the circus, uh, the circus, the circle too, before I slip there, they tend to make the circle too big, or they, or they say, what circle? There's, there's just like no, no boundaries anywhere. Well, this is the same kind of thing because a highly committed Christian is a little more likely to be harsh, but a newer follower of Jesus is more likely to offer spiritual indifference. Well, you know, I'm just going to let them decide on their own what they're going to believe and, and how they're going to grow up. Really? Are you just going to let them decide whether to sleep? Are you just going to let them decide whether or not to go to school? Some parents do, though. You know, are you just going to let them decide whether or not to, 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 brush their, to brush their teeth? Oh, no, we're going to have standards there. Oh, you're going to have standards there, but you're not going to have spiritual standards in your household? Are you kidding me? So apparently brushing your teeth is more important than following God? Well, I hadn't thought about it that way. 
Spiritual indifference is simply this. It's lack of spiritual guidance and discipline. And I've got some verses in your life notes. I'm just going to read them, and for the sake of time, and you can go back and look at them later. Proverbs 22.6, I think we probably are all familiar with these. Train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. It doesn't say, let them do whatever they want to do, and they're going to automatically turn towards God. No, parents have a responsibility to train their children up in the Lord, to teach the faith to their children. Here's another one, Proverbs 13.24. He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. Now, this is not a verse about spanking. You know, too, too many Christians have made this a verse about spanking. It's not about spanking one way or the other. It's a verse about what? Discipline. It's about discipline because the spanking that we call abusive and harsh and all that, that goes under harshness. That follows under embittering. And parents have to figure out whether they're going to live on timeouts or a little swat on the butt with care. And obviously there's not a point where, where you're leaving bruises, all that kind of stuff. Our culture kind of has swung the pendulum and, and then we, we go to this verse um, to defend spanking. That's not the issue. It's talking about discipline. The one who never disciplines their child in a way that creates enough pain, and I'm not talking about physical pain from spanking, okay? Time out can create pain. My grandmother used to say the worst thing for me wasn't whipping me, and that's the word she used for spanking, but it was really a whipping. She would say, take Walt's books away from him. Don't let Walt read. Because I, I could sit all day in a, room, in a room and read. Didn't bother me. Time out didn't bother me as long as I had something to read. The other verses here in Hebrews chapter, 15, or chapter 12 about God's work in us. It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. He disciplines us because he disciplines the ones he loves. Not abusively, not off the wall, not overacting, not harsh, but with a loving sense of, I'm not going to be indifferent because I care. I'm going to step into this situation. Now here's the third way that we cause these little ones to stumble. And that is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. What we might consider as parents to be discretion, our kids see as hypocrisy. Because our kids may buy our values, but they're going to set their own boundaries. So if my kids see that I, if my kids see that I preach honesty, but I'm not honest, when somebody calls, I tell them, you know, just tell them I'm not here. When they see me decide that there's some times where I can fudge the truth, they're going to say, oh, okay. They're going to decide where they can do it, only their boundary may not be the same boundary that I have. You can circle Luke chapter uh, 6, verses 39 and 40. I don't, I'm not going to put it on the screen, but in Luke 6, 39 and 40, it's on list on your life notes. You can look at it later. But there Jesus says, everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. And who's the primary teacher for children? Not the person at the local elementary school. The primary teacher for children, not the grandparent, it's the parent. It's not the Sunday school teacher. It's not the youth group leader. The primary teacher, according to God's word for children, is the parent. So they become like us. And then right after that, Jesus says this. He, he says, everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? In this case, think your kid's eye. And pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. He goes, first, take the plank out of your own eye. Then you can see clearly to take the speck out of theirs. Folks, in this context that the teacher-student, this is parent-child. And can we admit it? Can we admit it? Is there any of us that has never said these words, do as I say, not as I do? <laughs> We're probably all guilty of that. 
You're better than I am if, you, if, you, if you've never said those words. And their kids are watching us completely. They're watching our honesty. They're watching our com- keeping of our commitments. They're watching our sexuality, our, our priorities. They're watching all these things. And, and, and I can't try to keep the speck out of their eye when I've got a big plank in my eye. Three things that will cause little ones to stumble. So what causes us to stumble? The fourth question here. What causes me? What causes you to stumble? Well, I've got three little phrases I want to give you, and then I'm going to flush them out. And the first one is this. When it comes to stumbling, to moving away from God, that's what we're talking about. Different lures catch different fish. Different lures catch different fish. If you don't like the word lures, put bait. Okay? Same deal. You're trying to catch a fish. Depends on what you're fishing for, which lure, which bait you're going to use. So when it comes to what causes us to stumble, your list is going to be different from my list. When it comes to your hand, your foot, your eye, whatever other good things or whatever other tempting things are in your life. Because notice, hand, foot, and eye, would you agree? These are good things. My hands are good things. My my feet are good things. My eyes are good things. I really don't want to go through life without them. And some of us have had to, have, have had to, to deal with that. But he's saying, get rid of these things. Be radical about sin because if they cause you to stumble and the lure may be different for you than it is for me. It's not the lure that catches the fish. It's not the bait that catches the fish. It's the appetite. It's the fish's appetite. And that's why I can never say, well, God, you know, why did you allow that to happen to me? Or God, why did you do this or that? Or, or well, it's not my fault because, and then, no, you can't do that. You know, there's a whole lot of people that will walk by an unlocked car and let it go. There's a whole lot of people that will will keep on walking away from an inappropriate sexual advance and ignore it, and other people won't. There's a whole lot of people that will change the channel, and there's a whole lot of people, and I, I could go on and on and on. It's not the lure, it's the appetite. And here's what the Bible says, when the temptation comes from within, but what we would call an internal temptation, an internal desire that would cause us to stumble, when tempted by an internal desire, we should run. You should run. The Bible's crystal clear on this because the problem isn't the lure. The problem is my appetite. And so the more I go, boy, this looks good. This looks good. It won't be long before it hooks good. That's how it works. And so in your notes, I've listed 2 Timothy 2.22, which says, flee, flee, run from the evil desires of youth. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee from sexual immorality. But it's kind of any temptation that you have that's internal that, uh, you know, it could be covetousness. If you're tempted, if you have a propensity to covet, to want things that other people have, and it only surfaces when you're around people that have lots of stuff, you know what you need to do? Stay away from people with lots of stuff. If you don't have the temptation to covet, then enjoy their stuff. I mean, I've always said it's great to have a friend that has a boat, a pool, or a truck than to own one, right? If you're tempted to gossip, if you're tempted to talk about others, then stay away from people that you know have the temptation to talk about other people. Know what kills you and avoid them like the plague because you will never become strong enough to face off an internal temptation. You're to flee, to run. Now, when tempted by an external trial or an external hardship, the Bible tells us to stand firm. We tend to get these two things backwards, though. 
we tend to try to stand firm on the internals and run away from the externals. When all hell is breaking loose, when my marriage is not what I wanted to be, when the job commitment I made, not just the job, but, but the job commitment I made, the promise that I made to my boss, but it's not turning out the way I want. In our culture, we have a tendency to leave our commitments and the situations because it's hard. Now, you have the freedom to leave something as long as you're not spiritually compromising when you leave or, or sinning when you leave. But in fact, we will lie to get out of hardship. We will lie on loan papers to get a loan on a house that we otherwise would not have gotten. We'll do all these kind of things because, well, the, the trial is hard. But the Bible says, no, when the trial is hard, dig your feet in, stand firm up against it. That's the time to pray and Satan will flee from you. But no, we want to run away from commitments. We want to run away from promises that we've made. The Bible says when it's internally tempting, that's when we're to run. But too often we say, well, I'll just pray about it. No, flee, run. And we see this in all of life, not just the sin things. Anybody here ever gone on a diet? I haven't. I should, but I have. Um, I just want, you know, what do you do when you try not to eat something? Is it really good to have it? And if, if I'm trying not to eat a half gallon of ice cream every night, should I have ice cream in the freezer? No. Lou knows if I'm trying to stay away from ice cream, I don't even want it in the freezer because if it's in there, I can hear it calling my name. Walt. 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 Unless it's, unless it's like chocolate. Rock, rock, I don't like the stuff most people like. I like just like vanilla or butter pecan or strawberry. No, Lou knows I don't want ice cream in the freezer if I'm trying to stay away from ice cream. Now, these aren't, that's not a sin issue necessarily, but, but we got to do that. You need to know what tempts you. Different lures catch different fish. Run like crazy from the things that have hooked you before. Don't think, well, I'll stand up to it this time. And when it's a trial, when it's a hardship, when, when, when it gets hard, here's what God's promised. He'll help you through it. He'll, he'll help you find a way out of it. He says he'll, he'll give you one day at a time. He'll give you the strength that you need. He'll give you the power to stand and to fulfill your promise, to fulfill your commitment. But here's what he hasn't promised. He hasn't promised in the midst of an internal te temptation to give you the power because he's already told you what he wanted you to do. And that is what? Run! Flee! Okay. This is a series of lessons on the kingdom. To absolutely be first, serve other people. And this is a tough thing, but it's a huge thing. Jesus came to reach the world, not hide from the world. So make sure that we don't draw our circle smaller than he draws it. And let's also be careful because sin is serious. Let's be very careful with our children. We can't guarantee the outcome. I mean, there was a, there was a rebellion in the Garden of Eden. It was a rebellion against God in the first few chapters of the Bible. You've got Adam, you've got Eve, you've got a perfect situation, perfect environment, perfect parenting if you consider God the parent. You have no sin nature, and yet you still have rebellion because you have free will. We cannot cause the outcome, but we can influence the outcome with our little ones. I've oftentimes said that I, I've learned more about, about God from being a parent than any other, any other thing other than Scripture. And I tell you, one thing God's taught me is that God gave my children and my grandchildren now free will. And if I try to take away their God-given free will, what am I doing? I'm trying to be God. I'm trying to be God. I'm saying I don't trust God because I'm trying to be God in their life. No, God gave our children free will. He gave our grandchildren free will. We need to pray for them, not meddle, not to coerce, not to be harsh with them there. 
Don't be harsh. Don't say, well, you'll thank me someday. Don't be indifferent. Don't say, well, I'm just whatever you want to do. That decision, these decisions about spiritual matters are way too important. And whatever it is that you want for your children, you need to make sure that if that's what you want for your children, that you are living it for your Lord. Because they see, they know more than we would ever guess. And when it comes to living for the Lord, that's when Jesus turns the mirror. He says, hey, idiot, move the, move the plank out of your own eye before you try to pull a speck out of someone else's eye. Know what causes you to stumble. And even if it's your hand, if it's your foot, if it's your eye, cut it off because our eternity, our spiritual rewards are greater than all the other false gods and the false treasures that we would ever, ever chase. What a story. joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry at Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day.